Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. Today, Pastor Alex reviews what we've learned so far since our first introduction to Revelation and the mini-series in the book of Daniel. From the purpose of Revelation to the beasts in Daniel's visions to our rules of engagement to tackle this book, this is a broad review with a lot of information. To get the most from today's study, download the handout at truthmatterschurch.org slash resources. Here is Pastor Alex. All right, so we will be kicking off our introductory study in the book of Revelation, and I've titled this part three of our study, The Recap Edition. And here is a brief overview of our study for today. We're going to recap, as I mentioned previously, Daniel's visions that we've covered extensively for about three months, and that really sets the stage for the book of Revelation. I want to make sure for your sake and for my sake, that we have that backdrop. And then we're also going to briefly recap the intro study that we've done about four months ago. And as you recall, uh, we went on an excursion and did our Daniel mini-series. And the goal was really to focus on visions with end-time prophecies implications. So we didn't study the entire book of Daniel but we looked at the major visions given to Daniel and we wanted to focus on the visions that had end times implications because the book of Revelation is a book concerning the end times. And as you recall, we've covered the great statue, the four beasts, the ram and goat, the 70 weeks prophecy. And I do want to mention that we did cut our study Short in terms of timing because of the end of the year, it just felt appropriate and right that we close our calendar year 2021 with our, with our Daniel uh, mini-series and then head into 2022 really focused on the book of Revelation. So we didn't get to cover the vision. Daniel had another major vision in Daniel chapter 10 through 12, and that was a massive vision. We're talking about from the first king Darius the Mede, the four, the four kings that followed. We're talking about the Alexander the Greats that followed. And that was such a panoramic uh, vision that covered not only from Darius the Mede, the first Persian king, you know, including the Alexander the Greats, but all the way to the very end and also covered the, la- you know, the, the last king and kings that will arrive in the scene at the time towards the end. But nonetheless, the great, the great statue, the four beasts, the ram and the goat, and the 70 weeks prophecy, it gave us enough that we have enough backdrop. So I felt comfortable not having to spend another four weeks or so to un- unpack uh, chapters 10 and 12 because of the other visions encompassed a lot of that. It just had a more extensive panoramic view. And as you recall, our great statue vision, here's, a, here's the summary. This is what the great statue vision was all about. If you take that one hour, two hours, whatever it may be, here, I, try, I boil it down to one sentence. It represents historical and end time, ten times super world powers, so they're kingdoms and kings, who Israel's Messiah will crush and put to an end and set up an everlasting kingdom on earth. And as you'll see here uh, in this picture here, you know, the, the Middle Eastern countries 
and the European countries all surrounding the Mediterranean are all implicated on who Messiah will crush at the end. They're all in play. But that great statue vision was concerning in that, in that um, just that great statue, just know that it was representative of all the kings of all times. And then Messiah will crush all of them at the very end. So it definitely had end times implications. And we started to glean into that. And on to the four beasts. Here's what it is in a nutshell. When we studied the four beasts, and that one we, we did at least four weeks worth. I'll give you a couple of sentences. Here's what the four beasts was about. The four beasts are four kings. Here's, catch this, during the end times. Now, if you recall, if you've been with us in our studies, you know, the, there's a been a lot of teaching and um, a lot of school of thought out there that said that the, the lion with eagle's wings, the, the, the bear with three ribs in its mouth, the leopard with four heads and four wings of a bird, and then the iron teeth king, that those were representative of historical kingdoms. But when we dissected the prophecy, it did place a marker on these four kings. And it is not historical, as some suggest, although there could be a parallel. I'm not saying there couldn't be. But it was, they gave us markers that the four, king, uh, the four beasts are four kings during the end times. And these four kings, if you're, gonna, if you're wondering where are they going to come from, the great Mediterranean Sea. These four kings is going to come around, the Medit- uh, is going to arise from the Mediterranean na- uh, nations. And here was the purpose of those four beasts. They were God's instruments to punish Israel for their sin and rebellion. And in Daniel's vision, there was a fourth king, and that'll be a fourth kingdom, and will arise ten kings, of which what was described as a little horn, and as we know, looking at Scripture, is Antichrist, will arise from uprooting the first three kings. And we went through that all, all that study, and we tried to use Scripture as our guide. It naturally placed the, first, the, the four kings in this vision really surrounding the land of Israel. So we're talking about from Nur- uh, Turkey. It'll say if you were to start up top on the map, Turkey, and if you were to work your way, east and southward. You're going from Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, Libya. The four kings, at least when we use Scripture as our guide, says in the end times, there's going to be kings that are going to come out of these Mediterranean nations that are going to be major players on what's going to happen, you know, um, leading up ultimately to the return of Christ. But just to, in fairness, if you're a Mediterranean country, so if you know, Italy and Rome is a Mediterranean country, and if there is a play for the Catholicism, the, you know, the Pope, the papacy to be in play, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it because they are still part of the great sea, the great Mediterranean, the Rabiam. Uh, but just know that the four beasts, regardless, are four kings, four Meleks that, that are going to arise from Mediterranean nations. And then we studied the ram and goat, and that one was about a three or four week study. But here's what it is. Here's it in a nutshell. It represents historical 
and end-time kingdoms and kings who conquered and will conquer Mediterranean nations and kings. And this would include the people, the land, and the temple of Israel. And as we learn, the ram represents ancient Media Persia, and the goat represents ancient Yavon. And there is this small horn, who is the false prophet, is a descendant of the goat and will be given authority over the regular sacrifice and Israel's last king in the end times. And when we looked at the ram's identity, um, we said, you know, we said, okay, Iran is most likely, because the ram and goat, okay, just follow me. It was, here's the thing with prophecy. Sometimes it's present from the prophet to the future, you know, like that during that, that's, um, that view. And sometimes the prophecies is straight towards the end. In the ram and goat, it was also, it was from the view of the prophet. So it was from Daniel forward. So it was the present from Daniel. And then it also went all the way towards the end time. That's what Daniel says. And I kept looking and I kept looking and I kept looking. You can see he kept looking down further and further down time from where he was. Uh, so the ram and goat was both historical from Daniel, so it happened, but also there was, a, there was also prophecies concerning the end times. But the ram's identity, he, um, he got defeated by the goat, and that would represent you know, ancient Iran, most likely uh, what we know as Iraq, Afghanistan. But the goat, which defeated the ram and ended up having his horn broken off and into four horns, and then ultimately that divided, that represents modern-day countries such as Turkey. Um, and we said that that was most likely, and uh, that was the land that Japheth was allotted. But there were also the other Mediterranean countries that were in play. But the goat in this vision is where the false prophet's going to come from, who's going to arrive on the scene. Not the Antichrist, the false prophet. That was the takeaway from the ram and goat vision. And there's going to be a lineage, whoever he is can be traced back to who was represented in the goat ultimately. That's where the false, I mean, the false prophet will arise from. And that's going to come into play when we open up the book of Revelation. And as you recall, this was one of the, the sketches that we went through in our study. Um, you know, a good illustration, if you remember, when Daniel sees a vision, he is trying to communicate in that vision and put it into words. So he's like sketching. And what we came away from was four beasts came from the sea from the sea. And then the ram and goat, they didn't come from the sea. They came from land or they came from the earth. This is going to be important when we get to Revelation chapter 13. When John sees in his vision a beast arising from the sea. And then he goes on to say, and then I see a beast arising from the earth. We need to know from Daniel's visions, where does that fall? And then we're going to, from there, continue to understand or uh, study what that has in store for us. But that's why that's important. And one of the key takeaways, I don't think we can emphasize this enough, when you're reading Daniel's visions and you see the little horn, translated, transliterated, and then there's a small horn, it's, in, it's all over, it's in everyone's Bible, in the headers, that they're the same person. No, their origin, actually, one's from the sea and one's from the land. 
And one's the Antichrist, where he's going to come from, and one is the false prophet, who will pretty much point to the Antichrist. So that vision was important for us to understand about who's in play here in terms of end times prophecies being fulfilled. And of course, how can we forget our 70 weeks prophecy study? And here's, here's what it was about. When the 70 weeks prophecy was given to Daniel, the 70 weeks represents 490 years carved out in history as the total length of Israel's punishment for their sin unfaithfulness, and killing Messiah. Once the 490 years of punishment has been fulfilled, at the end times, God will rescue them. uh, What are they called in the book of Revelation when God will rescue his people? What were they called? The 144,000 were sealed from every tribe. So when we say that he's going to rescue his people, There is a remnant, those of his elective grace, that will be sealed in the end times to be saved. So once the punishment is over, then the sealing happens because the 490 years of the punishment that has been carved out is done. God will rescue them, make a full atonement for their sin, and then establish his kingdom on earth. And for... um, Hopefully none of you guys sold your houses and and liquidated your assets and started to live as a monk on the mountain somewhere. I mean, when we did our study and took a guess, it was really a guess. I could be wrong. Now, here's the thing. As far as the, the calculation and the guess is only as good as my source. But here's something you can feel pretty comfortable in. If we were to view the 70 weeks prophecy as 490 years that God has carved out of human history to punish Israel. And if we, were to, we use the scripture to say, okay, when, how does God determine the length of time for punishment? And we went through the numbers principle about the 40 days in the wilderness uh, became 40 years in the wilderness. 40 days for their rebellion became 40 years in the wilderness, a day for a year. Well, if you take the seven years, because we know the 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy has been fulfilled, what happens to the 70th week? There's a seven-year period. And you multiply that by a biblical prophetic year of 360, that's 2,520 days. So if you take a principle and say, okay, God is going to extend their punishment 2,520 years a day for a year for killing Messiah, then whatever that decree was, Add 907,200 days, you'll get pretty darn close to when the punishment's going to end. There's an end date. And we can use Scripture as our guide. And when we took our guess, it did take us in the next decade or so. That's where it took us. Because that's the best calculation based off of the dates that was available for, to me and then also the converters that I used So there's all these variables. Of course, it's not perfect. I could be wrong. But the Word of God isn't wrong. And Israel's punishment will come to an end. And I don't think God made an arbitrary choice on how long their punishment will be. When they killed Messiah, 
Because remember, that was the 69th week. Instead of now establishing his kingdom, remember that even the Jews said, Lord, will you now at this time establish the kingdom? There was this expectancy. Is God going to reward his people, the kingdom, for killing their Messiah? No, it's not for them to know the epochs and times determined by his Father. So God's saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to postpone the kingdom. And I don't think he made an arbitrary choice on how long that is. I really think the day-for-a-year principle and that that seven-year period that hasn't been fulfilled, multiply it by 360, converted to year, you know, days converted to years, and then go back to when the decree was issued, when the clock started of that decree, of the, the, the 70 weeks clock at the end of that would take us to the end of their punishment. Now he'll die for them, the 144,000, and rescue them. So it all, it all makes sense. But that's what the 70 weeks prophecy was all about. And when we open up the book of Revelation, we'll have some markers. Like, okay, here's the 70th week of Daniel. Do you know when the 70th week of Daniel is? I think I know, but I'm going to have to confirm it. I have to confirm it with the scripture. Do you know when the 70 weeks starts? Is, there has to be a telltale something. How about the writer writing on a conquest? When Jesus first broke the seal, would that kick off the first 70 weeks? That's where my spirit is leaning towards. Because there was a, a rider on a white horse given a bow to conquer. Conquer who? You got to look at Daniel's visions. And of course, when you get to the fourth seal, then there's a great martyr, a great tribulation. Then there's going to be an erection of an altar in the temple. So all these come into play, but at least there's going to be some pretty clear indicators of where are we in the epics of history. The church has been given this insight, and we're trying our best to use the Scripture so that when it, we can be encouraged and that when it happens, amen, even if that causes us our life. Bless God. So look at that. We just did all Daniel. Now here's the key takeaways. Here's what I want us to take away from Daniel. Three-month study. End times prophecy is primarily centered around the people of Israel. End times prophecy is primarily centered around the land of Israel. And end times prophecy is primarily centered around or between Mediterranean nations. Mediterranean nations. Sorry, U.S. Sorry, Canada. Sorry, South America. Sorry, Russia. Sorry, China. Sorry, there's a lot more. Mediterranean nations. The end times prophecies is primarily centered around Mediterranean nations because that's where the Middle East is. The neighboring nations surrounding the people and land of Israel. We get that. The net doesn't go so big. Now, could there be implications from other nations and countries? Absolutely. We are at a point in time in history, where we are so integrated, and even in fact, if there is a collapse in the European side of things, that impacts us. Brexit, that impacts us. We are so intertwined with our commerce. So when end times prophecies is playing out, and let's say it's surrounding the Mediterranean nations because we're so intertwined, can others get implicated? Yes. But the primary focus of end times prophecy implicates Mediterranean nations. We got, we got to get that. Here's what to look for. Okay, what do we look for? This is taking all those three months. 
Here's what we look for as a church. A holy covenant between Mediterranean nations. Now, now I'm not talking about a peace treaty. I'm not talking about peace. I'm not talking about the Abraham Accord that was signed when Trump was still in office. I'm talking about a holy covenant between Mediterranean nations to come together in this holy covenant. That's what we need to look for. And that would include Israel. So the Muslims, the Jews, some other religion, whatever it may be, whatever is out there in the Mediterranean. You can throw Catholicism in there because they're a Mediterranean country. But a holy covenant between Mediterranean nations who have definitely a diverse belief and background. When that is in place, that's what we got to look for. There's a holy covenant in Mediterranean nations. In that holy covenant, permission will be granted to the Jews to rebuild the third temple and the reinstitution of animal sacrifices. When there's a holy covenant between Mediterranean nations, Israel is implicated, and now they're able to rebuild their temple and, re- and begin their animal sacrifices. We are right there. The end is not far. Here's a very easy one. False prophets and messiahs making great claims in the Middle East or in the Mediterranean side of the world, and they're performing signs and wonders. It's going to hit your Twitter feed, your liberal media, people claiming to be a prophet and a messiah. A messiah is here. What did Jesus say? When the messiah says, look, he's here, he's over there. Don't go. That's another telltale. If there's false prophets and messiahs starting to arrive on the scene, because we, it's been pretty quiet, pretty low-key, after, you know, since the time of the apostles. There's still been false prophets and messiahs, but more low-key. But it's going to start to pick up and accelerate. We're right there. Here's one. There's going to be a dispute and wars in, between Mediterranean nations that could implicate other countries, including over the Holy Covenant. There's going to be a dispute. They can't cleave together. They just completely, the Muslims and Jews, they can't cleave. They have a completely different belief system. But let's say in the spirit of peace and in the spirit of, hey, unity, let's enter into this holy covenant. It's not going to fly. And there's going to be a dispute and wars between the Mediterranean nations, including over that holy covenant. When that starts to happen, Daniel 70 week, it's right there. Or we're either in it or it's right there. Another telltale. This is what we got to keep an eye out for. The giving over of animal sacrifice and Israel's prime minister over to another world leader. Okay, once there is an animal sacrifice that's going on in Jerusalem, once the animal sacrifices and Israel's prime minister, the authority will be given to another world leader. Woo! Yeah, their end is near. This is the easiest of them all. The destruction of Israel and the erection of the abomination of desolation in the temple. Those are our takeaways from us. We got, you know where I got that from? Daniel's visions. All of them, collectively. So, try to consolidate it. Here's what we have to look out for as a church. Those are our key takeaways. So, we're done with Daniel. Recap. Did that help? Okay. Now, let's recap our Revelation intro study. Remember our rules of engagement? We're going to just recap that really quick. And just, you know, I try to do these all in, in, in minimal slides as possible because I do want us to, I'm trying to, I know, I, I, know I, I can get very detailed and we can get lost in a lot of things. 
Actually, this way, you're getting it straight up. We're going to recap our rules of engagement. And as, if you recall, in our intro study about four months ago, we answered five questions, and we're going to recap them. I'm not going to go into, just so you know, I'm not going into any detail in any of these five. I'm just going to touch them so that we are reminded of what we've learned. And then when we open up the book, I'm like, hey, remember? Remember I said watch out for this? Remember Daniel's vision here? Remember Jesus said here? Here's what's going on, and we're going to lay it out and see where the chips fall. But we're going to answer five questions or, or recap the five questions. You know, what is the book of Revelation about? Who wrote it? When? And to whom was it written to? Uh, what was its intended purpose? How is it to be interpreted? And what do I need to know to understand it? And Jeremy, I, th- I remember I kind of mentioned this to you, this kind of idea. You know, there's the Ten Commandments, thou shall not, or thou shall. Well, kind of playing off of that, I made the rules of engagement kind of like the commandments. If you want to know, how do you study the Bible? What are the rules of engagement? What are the rules to abide by so that we don't go off to the right or off to the left and we stand on Scripture alone? And here are the rules that, just so you know, that I personally abide by. And as we go through these, I abided by these rules to the extent I can. I'm not perfect. But this kept me accountable in our Daniel study. And I'm going to, with God's help, abide by these rules of engagement as we open up the book of Revelation. So here they are. Here are the principles to help study the Scripture effectively. Number one, thou shalt interpret Scripture with Scripture. Anyone can say that they interpret Scripture with Scripture, but are you really interpreting Scripture with itself? So that's number one. Number two, thou shalt not add or take away from Scripture. And there's a warning in the book of Revelation. A warning of adding or taking away from the prophecy of this book. So I'm going to be reminded of this one throughout the study. Don't add or take away, Alex. Don't add or take away. If you don't know, you don't know. But what is clear or what's what's there, work with it and let it speak. Number three, thou shalt not take Scripture out of context. That's a big one, huh? What do you think is the biggest, obviously with the false teaching out there today, the, the fall of, you know, true biblical Christianity, true sound doctrine in faith and in love. You know what the number one violation that quote-unquote teachers of the word will not abide by or what will do? They'll take scripture out of context. That's where you get the word of faith preachers. That's where you get anyone who wants to satisfy their sinful passions and lusts. They'll take a scripture verse and make it suit themselves. But the rules of engagement, thou shalt not take Scripture out of context. Number four, thou shalt interpret Scripture with the literal fulfillment. Scripture isn't just poetry that's to tickle our ears. There is a literal fulfillment behind what it says. When it comes to prophecy, it's literally fulfilled. The book of Revelation is the prophecy. It's going to be literally fulfilled. Literally, as it says, what's going to happen is going to happen. So we are to interpret Scripture with the literal fulfillment in view, understanding we have to take the genre, we have to take the the author, the authorial intent, the audience, all that stuff, and synthesize all that. 
but then understand that whatever, if there's prophecy that's being communicated, when you stick with these rules of engagement, you'll go, okay, here's the literal fulfillment. Here's what's communicated, and then it will be literally fulfilled. For example, when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth and reign for a thousand years, he's going to establish his kingdom on earth and reign for a thousand years. That's a literal fulfillment. Not, it's not just poetry. It's not just fancy. It's really going to happen. Thou shall not impose, number five, thou shall not impose personal bias. I'm human. I have to fight against this. But one of the rules of engagement, don't impose your personal bias into the text. Hey, I wanted to say this because that's how I understand it. Or that's where I'm most comfortable. So I'm going to put myself over the text. Don't do that. Let the text say what it says and you fall under it, under its authority. Number six, thou shalt not pass down man's opinion. Part of the reason why the book of Revelation is all over the map in terms of its interpretations and, and speculation, you name it. Why it's all over the map? Why the church is also all over the map? You pass down man's opinion. You listen to a group of teachers and you say, okay, what did they, what did they hold to? And I'm just going to pass that down. We're not going to do that here. We're not going to go to man's opinion, we're going to go and look to Scripture. Number seven, thou shalt not over-spiritualize Scripture. So here's the thing. There are some things that are true that you can't see, so we call that a spiritual truth or reality. And that's true. There are some truths when it's communicated in Scripture that it's a spiritual truth. It's an unseen truth. But what we're going to resist is don't over-spiritualize everything so that everything is just spiritual, even though there is a literal intent or fulfillment behind it. Don't over-spiritualize the text. One example, the thousand-year reign of Christ is not really a thousand-year reign. It's a spiritual reign, okay? Because the kingdom of God is not, doesn't come with observation, right? It's within you. Okay, that's true. Does that mean that Revelation 20, when it gives us graphic details, that he's going to establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years and rule their nations for a thousand years and all the Psalms that says that the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to rule on high and that the leaders are going to scoff, but he's going to come and rule with an, a rod, an iron scepter, that that's spiritual too? Or is he really going to establish his kingdom on earth and bring in an unending, an, uh, an unending state of righteousness in Jerusalem? How about it's both? Don't over-spiritualize the text. That's just one example. Where are we now? Number eight. Thou shalt not present speculation as truth. Don't speculate. And then don't take that speculation and represent it as truth. That causes, that adds to the madness and the confusion of the book of Revelation and all the scriptures you can say. Here's number nine, and this is a big one. Thou shalt not resist what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's say, by God's grace, he's granted me grace to handle his word right, that you hear the word of God. And it's not from me, it's from him. There's going to be a conflict in you saying, well, um, well that means that I was wrong, or that means that so-and-so was wrong that I highly regard, blah, 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 blah. But if that's what the scripture says, don't resist what the Spirit says to the churches. Now with that said, don't think you're better than someone else just because 
you have an insight on a truth that someone else might not. We're all on the same playing field. We all need God's grace. But once we come to that truth revealed in Scripture, don't resist what the Spirit says to the churches because it's supposed to encourage us. And in turn, we encourage one another. And last but not least, thou shall not sensationalize Scripture. And this is where you know, a lot of teachers out there, because the book of Revelation is very, very descriptive, and when I read it, it sounds like a Hollywood movie that, you know, similar, I mean, there's already the apocalypse, right? There's uh, Armageddon movies, things like that. And when you read the book of Revelation, it sounds kind of like that. So there could be this tendency to just oversell or overstate something and compromise truth in the process because they didn't do the diligence and the backdrop to get more of what the scripture has in store for us and just kind of, it's kind of the easy way out. Yeah, the end of the world's coming, but you're like, okay, that's a, that's a pretty broad statement, but you won't do anything else to like warn people to repent and, 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 and to come to faith in Christ and give them the gospel and everything. So there could be this tendency to sensationalize Scripture and the rules of engagement that we're going to abide by is we're not going to do that. But when the Scripture says it, we're not going to. There's going to be some unpleasant studies of what's in store for those who are on earth when certain judgments will happen. You know the flood that happened? It really happened. You know people literally drowned except Noah and his family. However people, how many, however many people were alive at the time of Noah, let's say there was millions, I don't know, whatever it is, every single one of them drowned to death. That really happened. So in the end, when we get to the book of Revelation and there's going to be a God pouring out his judgments resulting in death, there will be a mass slaughter at certain points of time. It's happening. It's, it's, it's reserved for that time. It's going to happen. And we're, we'll get there. And it's going to be a little uncomfortable. But thank God for rescuing us from the wrath to come. His wrath is coming. I'm not going to over-sensationalize it. His wrath is coming, and we'll see what that looks like and what's in store. So there's our rules of engagement, and I've tried my best with God's help to stay with this, and we'll continue to use this as, you know, um, to keep me accountable before you when we open up the book of Revelation. And if you, you, say, if you see me go off to the left and right, or Alex, here, you, you just put your bias or opinion into this. Tell me so that I can repent of that and then get it right. That's what it's about. Okay, we're going to recap the questions we've answered. What is the book of Revelation about? See, so we see the book Revelation translated in our Bibles, but it's the Greek apocalypsis, and it means apocalypse. And when you think of apocalypse, it's the removal of something so that you see. It's the unveiling uh, or, you know, another good way, too. Um, how many of us have watched, like, Price is Right? You know, before, behind door number one, door number two, door number three. And then, you know, you're like, you're, you're playing the game, and you, you, you pick a door, and then it's opened. There was an apocalypse. There was an unveiling and uncovering. It was veiled, but now it's open, okay? 
The book of Revelation is the unveiling of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. He will be revealed to all mankind. Every eye will see him, John tells us. Even those who pierce them, that's another thing. We're going to look, what, what do you mean? Every, even those who pierce them are going to see him? Come, but they're dead. Are they? Or are they raised to see him? So those are things that we're going to glean on as we study Scripture. But the book of Revelation is about the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ so that those who are on the earth and every eye will see him. That, that's what this book is about. It's the details surrounding that unveiling. Okay, uh, And I mentioned this before, of course. If you look at Genesis as the book of origins, beginnings, then the book of Revelation is the book of destiny. It's the book of completion, conclusion, and ending. And again, it's, surrender, it's centered around the glorious return of Messiah before and after. And it's going to fulfill. So when, book of, uh, when Revelation, when you get to chapter 22, and it's done, and we're in the new heavens and the new earth, all of the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies have been fulfilled. What does is, what is the, uh, the Word of God say? That His Word will not be returned void. Every single word, every single prophecy that was recorded from Genesis to Revelation, Revelation is the completion of everything. Just as the book of Genesis is the book of origins and gives us the beginnings we have how the world is going to be uncreated and end and it's going to give us graphic details on what's in store for the church in the end times there's going to be an apostasy and we've studied that in our first john study and there will be that that moment in time will happen it's, it's going to tell us what's in store for the church and that would include jews uh, christians and messianic jews It'll give us details in what's in store for the people of Israel, the land of Israel, the world, including Antichrist, false prophet, final world power, non-believers, and wrath judgments. And it's also going to give us details concerning, I mentioned the apostasy of the church, and the great tribulation. As we get further on in these questions, we're going to talk about some schools of thought, and I'll talk a little bit more about the great tribulation there. But it gives us details about the great tribulation. What is that? What's the great tribulation? Is, it, and is this great tribulation seven years? Where'd you get that? Oh, but th that's where I saw in this graph or this teacher. Okay, okay but what is the great tribulation? Who is, it, who is it surrounding? Is the U.S. part of the great tribulation? Or is it more centralized? So these are things where Daniel's visions is going to keep us from going all over the map. Uh, resurrections, plural, so there's going to be multiple resurrections. There's, in, I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit here when we get to that point in the graph, but there are some schools of thought that time is going to go and then everyone's going to be resurrected all at once at the end. I believe, is it what, John 5 or John 10? John, yeah, John 5, John chapter 5, where, the, where it says, uh, the dead will rise, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting damnation. Don't quote me on the chapter. I'm trying to, it's been a while since I saw that passage. But, some people hold the view that everyone's going to be resurrected all at once. And we're going to see it. That's not the case. There's going to be orders of the resurrection. <laughs> and the church has an order of the resurrection. And we're going to see where that is. Uh, it also gives us details about the establishment of the millennial kingdom, judgments, 
That's also plural. There's going to be multiple judgments. So the sheep and goats judgment is distinct from the great white throne judgment, as we'll see. As you even see where it falls in, in the timeline, it's not the same judgments. And not everyone's going to stand in the same judgments. So different group of people are going to be in one judgment versus another group of people is going to be in another judgment. And we'll see where that falls. And then it gives us also details about the internal state, the uncreation of things, the new heavens and a new earth and the new Jerusalem. You know, when I think about it, like we're so used to creation as it is now, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. All this is going to be folded, like the scripture says, like a garment. And God will usher in a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem where righteousness dwells. Uh, Let's look at the second question. Uh, Who wrote it, when, and to whom was it written to? Uh, John wrote it while exiled on the island of Patmos. So the apostle John, so what was happening, if you were to go back in his day, Christianity caused a great disturbance and it became a pain pretty much for Rome. And it got to the point where, because the Jews obviously hotly contested Jesus and Christianity, so, and we hear, we see the stories of Paul where, you know, he would go to the synagogue and, you know, he would get into debates and he would even get beaten and, and there would be riots. So, John, living towards the end of his life, Christianity started to become a nuisance and he became exiled to the island of Patmos. So he wrote Revelation and was given the vision while on the island of Patmos. And he was exiled for preaching the gospel and because of Christianity. And we get that from Revelation 1.9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And we've established this. When was it written? We can actually feel pretty Confident. If we were to date, when was the book of Revelation written? We can look to Irenaeus, who was a Greek bishop south of France, born in the early 2nd century, and he attributes the date of the writing of Revelation towards the end of the reign of Domitian, and that would take it towards you know, 95-96 AD. So Revelation was written around that time, and, and uh, I'm not going to get into this because we spent a lot of time in our original study, Um, But Revelation was written 25 years after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, And we'll we'll talk a little bit more of that later. Uh, But and to whom was it written to? Here's where it gets, you know, the word of God, it's sometimes it, it, it can be challenging because sometimes it is talking just to a specific group and then sometimes it's both. You're talking to their group, and then it's going beyond. And prophecy is like that. And sometimes, like I mentioned, when we, um, you know, some of Daniel's visions, he's given visions you know, from his time, the immediate, and then also all the way to the very end. But so although he's talking here, there are some in that prophecy that's talking about the end. The same is here when it comes to who was this written to. It was written to the seven churches. Uh, Revelation 1.4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. So if you want to be in technicality, who are we right now? If we're a church or believers, we're in the United States. Are you in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey? No. The book of Revelation wasn't written to you specifically. But within the letters to the churches, 
to he who hears, to he who overcomes. There is this truth that applies to all believers, and we'll cover and touch on what those are. So it has a dual fulfillment. The letter was written to seven churches, but within that there's prophecies towards the end. So it's a little tricky, and we'll do our best to, to get through that. So it's written to seven literal churches, at least in immediate context, and that's Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And if you might remember this, how do I help remember? I want to remember the order of the churches. Every smart person that says Philly loves. That helps me inventory in my mind the seven churches and when was it, you know, to whom, um, who they are. Every smart person that says Philly loves. And here is a brief map of where the seven churches are located geographically. And it's modern-day Turkey, pretty much the seven churches. Turkey. That's at least from the, historic, from the first century standpoint, when John wrote while he was exiled, the churches were in what we know as Turkey. But that's where the churches were. But as I mentioned, it's also prophetic, and it implicates churches in the end times, and at a minimum in those regions. Okay? We're in our third question. See how we're just kind of going through these. So if someone were to ask you, why was revelation given to John? What was his intended purpose? To bless us. Now let me ask you guys a, a question. And I kind of mentioned this in our introductory prayer. It's a pretty dark world that we live in. Wouldn't you agree? There's a lot of chaos. Crazy chaos. Lawlessness bold lawlessness, defiance. Culturally, there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of stuff going on. We're not going to find blessing in the world that we live and the circumstances that we're faced. So the book of Revelation was given to take our minds off of the temporary and to bless us and what's in store for us in the future. This isn't our home. We need to be reminded of that. This earth that we live in will be disposed eventually. This whole solar system is going to be dissolved with fervent heat. In fact, when you think about just our galaxy solar system, the planets that we know of, the planets out there, the Jupiters, the Saturns, are made of a gas. It's quite fitting that God will uncreate with fervent heat and he could very well use the matter, the planets and solar system that he has in place to dissolve everything with fervent heat. So the book of Revelation was given to take and to remind us that what we're going through is temporary and that our Savior is coming. So it's to bless us. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. And this was written about 2,000 years ago. So if it was near then, dude, he's like at the door in a, you know, in a prophetic sense. And, right, we did our 70-week study. It's, like it was, it's not too far from us, right? And I, I, th- I don't think that's too far-fetched, but again, it could be off. It was also, its intended purpose was to give the church insight into the end times. So God gave us his word, so that we can know who he is, right? primarily. If you want to know who God is, well, read and study his word. But you can't understand it unless he's given you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that understands, so we need that grace. 
So he's given us his word so that we can learn who he is, number one. He's also given us his word to show you what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. So its intended purpose was to give the church insight into end times, which is near in a prophetic sense. And Jesus, in his closing comments in the end of Revelation, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you these things for the churches. The book of Revelation was written for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And something that, you know, just as, just as students of his word, if you were to look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament was given to the Jews. But God gave the church apostles who wrote the New Testament and their associates. So the church has the entire redemption story. So what was the intended purpose of Revelation? Was to give the church in this case, through the pen of the Apostle John, the entire redemption story. So the church, because right now the Jews have just the Old Testament. They only have the beginning and the middle. The church has the beginning, the middle, and the New Testament, which has the end. And so we have God's, all of God's redemptive will and plan concerning his people. And so Revelation, and if you were to kind of look at it, when we studied Daniel's visions, and we didn't get to the final chapter, chapter 12, when it says, seal up the vision, Daniel. And I said, sealed to whom? It was to the people of Israel. Why is it sealed? Because of their un- lack of faith, unfaithfulness, for their rebellion against God. Well, the book of Revelation is the unsealing of Daniel's vision and the continuation. And I, and I mentioned this before, Revelation is like Daniel 2 in the New Testament. Question four. How is it to be interpreted? Now, in our initial study, I kind of just blasted through this, but I'm going to talk just a little bit because there are some, distinct, there are some distinctions between these school of thoughts on how is it to be interpreted. Um, there's a school of thought. It's called historicism. It's also called, you might, this might sound better, post-millennialism. And that school of thought, there is no tribulation pretty much tribulation began with the first century church and it continues to the end. So the tribulation is just from the first century church to the end. We'll see some graphs just to to remind us. And there's a school of thought that there is no rapture. That's pretty much historicism and post-millennialism. There's this other school of thought called futurism. You might better know it as pre-millennialism. And there's kind of two uh, different schools of thought within that thought, and there's historical premillennialism, which is a post-trib resurrection. When you hear, okay, when I say millennialism, that's concerning the thousand-year reign of Christ. Millennial, 1,000 years, Revelation chapter 20. So there's different schools of thought on what, what that is and how to interpret the thousand years. You know, is it Spiritual? Is it literal? I already showed you my hand. It's obviously literal. But there are different schools of thoughts out there that says otherwise. And they're, they're kind of in, they're embedded here. So when you hear premillennialism, it's concerning the return of Jesus. Is he going to come before that thousand-year period described in Revelation 20? Or is he going to come after the thousand-year? So when you hear post-millennialism, premillennialism, the, the first school of thought saying, well, Jesus is going to come after that thousand-year period described. And that's kind of 
Oh, no, it's kind of, how can you come after you're coming, you know? Like, so anyways, you know, I'm telling you, I'm reading this and I'm like, whoa. Like, the logic just, woof, it just goes off. Like, I, 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 you lost me. Like, wait, how can you come after your return? <laughs> like, like, anyways, that's what postmillennialism means by definition. Um, but there's premillennialism saying, well, Jesus is going to come after the tribulation and uh, there's going to be a resurrection or he's going to come pre trib before the the millennial kingdom and before the tribulation and there's going to be this rapture we'll talk a little bit more about that and then there's this other school of thought called preterism so preterism is from the latin preteritum and that means thing of the past when you hear when someone says well i'm a preterist or i'm a partial preterist then you're saying well when it comes to revelation that uh, you know at least some or most if not all have been fulfilled already in the past that's, that's what preterism means. You're just looking, oh yeah, that's, you're reading history kind of deal from where we're, at, where we're at right now. And then there's this last one called idealism. But here's a better word, amillennialism. That's idealism. Um, that's a school of thought. But here it is in a nutshell. So if you look at the book of Revelation, book of Revelation is 22 chapters. So this first school of thought of historicism They'll look at the first three chapters, which is the letter to the seven churches, and they'll say it's the first century church. And then they'll say chapters 4 through 19, and this would include, there's much more, but I just want to put some markers so you know, at least the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowl judgments, that they view 4 through 19 as historical. So they're saying, oh, those, the, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, it started at the first century, and it just kind of continued on. So that's this school of thought. And then when you get to chapter 20 in the millennial, uh, the millennial kingdom, they're saying, well, that's before the second coming, which is, again, I think is, is hard. Um, and then there's the last you know, two, three chapters, the judgments and resurrection. Then they hold that Satan is judged, mankind is raised, and then judged. But that's just kind of a, a summary of how that school of thought is to be interpreted. Here's where, when you get to this other school of thought, uh, if someone says they're premillennialism, then you're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, they believe that Jesus comes before his thousand-year reign is established. And um, the historical premill view views chapters 1 through 3, the letter to the seven churches, to the first century churches. Chapters 4 through 19, again, the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls. This is where, when you're like, wait, where did you get great tribulation and seven years? It's from this school of thought, historical premillennialism. They'll say chapters 4 through 19, the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. That whole period is the great tribulation. That's the school of thought. And they believe that believers are raised after the great tribulation. So you can see that they're post-trib, at least for this school of thought. Chapter 20, the millennial uh, establishes a thousand kingdom. So they do believe in a literal kingdom. And, of course, it's after he comes on earth to establish his kingdom, and that would be after the Great Tribulation. And when you get to the last two, three chapters, they do believe that Satan is ultimately judged after the thousand years and the rest of mankind raised and judged. So that's what, you would, um, that's what would be called historical or sometimes called classical premillennialism. And then there's this other school of thought within that that's called dispensational premill. I know that's a big word. But pretty much, this, they believe everything from the classical pre-mill, but there's one key difference. 
They believe in the pre-trib secret rapture. So that stems from historical or classical premillennialism, but they're saying, well, there is one difference though. Oh, this rapture that no one knows the day or the hour and to be ready and that no one knows and then he can come like a thief and all that good stuff. There is the secret rapture that comes from this school of thought. And we'll see through our study in the book of Revelation if that holds water. Um, this other school of thought, partial preterist, as I mentioned, preterist means in Latin, the things of the past. So when they look at chapters one through three, the letter to seven churches, they'll view it as to the first century church. When you get to the seals um, part, this is kind of interesting. They kind of broke up within their, uh, this one was hard for me to follow too. I was like, wait, so chapters four through 11, the seal and part of the trumpets, they said it was fulfilled in 70 AD. Say, so, okay. And then the other, there are other parts of the trumpets and bulls that are after 70 AD, and that's really Rome's fall. And then when you get to chapter 20, the millennial, um, they don't believe in a thousand-year reign, so they'll spiritualize the kingdom, and they'll say it's in the believer's hearts only. That's a partial preterist. And when you get to the end, when Christ comes, Satan will be judged. All, man, all mankind is raised and judged. So it's just kind of like a plain vanilla. And I can see maybe... As a, as a new believer, you know, you're like, well, okay, let's see, you, you've, you've accepted Christ as Savior, you know, you're, you're just a baby Christian. I think naturally you might think, yeah, the world just goes as it is, and when he comes, everyone's going to be judged, and we'll just stand at once. But when we go through the book of Revelation, as we'll see, that's, it's, not that, it's not quite that uh, simplistic. There's an order of things that are going to happen before everything ultimately gets uncreated. And there's a full preterist view. And this view pretty much takes all of Revelation chapters 1 through 22, the entire book, as being fulfilled in 70 AD. And I just put that's scriptural suicide. Like, wait, how can Revelation be written 25 years after the destruction, and yet you're saying it's all fulfilled of when it was pre-written? <laughs> like, or, you know, it, it came after the events, not before the events. So it wasn't fulfilled. Anyways, the full preterist view will view the entire book of Revelation as being fulfilled 25 years before it was written. So it's writing history in nice language, pretty much. That's a full preterist view. And then last but not least, amillennial view. Um, this will view chapters 1 through 3, letter to the seven churches, to the first century churches. When you get to chapters 4 through 19 with the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, they're going to say it's historical from the first century church to the end times. And then chapters 20, 20 uh, through 22, when you get to the judgments and resurrection, there's not going to be no thousand year reign. There's the spiritual reign that's happening since Christ came. And then there's no reign. There's no kingdom because the, the world's just going to end. Uh, Satan's going to be judged. Mankind will be raised and judged. But where's the new heavens and the new earth in this one? So anyways, there's... Obviously, some different variations between these school of thoughts. And you guys remember this? Which view is correct? That's right. It was a trick question. Remember? We're going to abide by the rules of engagement. So we call it scripturism. Wherever the scripture takes us, that's what we're going to hold. Okay? We'll mention Daniel. How does Daniel tell us to interpret it? So if Daniel were here, what would he tell us? Well, he would say, view it from the standpoint of Israel's judgment. That's how we are to interpret Revelation. When you look at Revelation, it's from the standpoint of Israel's judgment. So here's, a, here's another way to kind of look at it this way. 
when Israel, the Jews, killed Messiah, that 30 AD, when they had him killed, God pushed out their punishment. And then I'm suggesting to you, it's 2,520 days converted to years. When he pushed that out, there was this mystery that happened. The establishment of the church, the advent of the church. So while he is prolonging Israel's punishment for killing Messiah, God instituted the church. And the church was a mystery that was kept hidden. And Paul had the privilege to reveal the glory of the mystery of what we call the church. And that's what Ephesians is all about. So the church was a mystery and an extension of Israel's punishment for killing their Messiah. So the reason why the church exists is because the Jews killed Messiah. God is going to deal with them later. And for the time being, I'm going to be the body on earth. Christ in people. Not in a tabernacle made of hands, but he's going to be living in our hearts. And God is going to use us, the body of Christ, as his instruments to bring the gospel. So we're to focus that the church is, we're going to come to our point, and then we'll, the end of the church kind of generally will be in the apostasy, then there's no more use for the church. God's run its, has run its course. God has done his purpose. People have been saved that were supposed to be saved. And then from that point in time, he will now reshift his focus to the people of Israel. And this is where you get to Romans chapter 11. You know, did God for, you know, forsake his people whom he foreknew? No. But and even Paul says, but that, you know, that we would stir them up to jealousy. We're now getting the blessings of embracing Christ as Messiah and having his spirit in us and awaiting the promised kingdom that was really for them, but now we're going to be part of that blessing. So, we're to, so Daniel we're here, he says, we are to focus, or we are to interpret Revelation with the people and end of Israel in focus, and then we are to view Revelation with Old Testament prophecies as our foundation. That's how we are to interpret it. And you may recall this is kind of, um, this was a graph. So when John wrote and penned the book of Revelation around 95, 96 AD, towards the latter part of the first century, whatever he's writing is forward from John, not backwards. So that already eliminates 70 AD from the equation because it's the prophecy. It's not the history. It's the prophecy. That's why the full preterist, it's the history. But what the book says, it's the prophecy. So that's where if we were to abide by the rules of engagement, say, oh, well, I can't resist what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not the history. It's the prophecy. I have to let that go. That's, where, that's a practical example there. And when it comes to the book of Revelation, just so you know, when we open the book, I'm going to read it from chapter 1 through 22, meaning chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 is unfolding in the order it's given. That's what I'm going to do. Meaning, except when you get to, uh, like, let's say Genesis, when it gives the creation account, it kind of goes forward and kind of goes back to day 6. That's a little different. If there's time markers that puts it there, we would go there. But just know, as a general approach, I'm just reading Revelation 1 through 22 sequentially and chronologically in the order it was given. So when the seven seals are given, it's, um, and then the seven trumpets follow, it follows that, and then the seven bowls follow that. It's not a recapitulation of what's going on. No, it's an extension of what's going on. And, he's there, and I think they're intentional in why they're once called a seal judgment, a trumpet judgment, and a bowl judgment. They have its different purposes. It's not describing the same thing. Its description is an indication of that. 
So uh, let's get to our last question, and then we'll wrap this up. What else do you need to know to understand? And we went through this. And if you want to recap on, on any of this, of course, you can go back to our website and get all of the details. I'm just really touching the surface on a lot of this. Um, but we do need to have some familiarity of some Old Testament prophecies and promises. We do need to recognize or acknowledge that there's two distinct seed from the fall, and one's really ultimately Christ and Antichrist. And then we have to have some familiarity with the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, we need to have some familiarity with the Mosaic covenant. Um, we need to have some familiarity with the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant in particular is important because God promised David that he will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. And it was a prophecy concerning the Messiah's kingdom. And there's a whole chapter of that in Revelation chapter 20 that is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to David. So if you're to look at when David was a thousand years or two before Christ, however long that was, God promised him an everlasting kingdom and it's going to happen in the millennial reign of Christ and David will be raised by that time. So that is a promise that was made over the millennia and it will come to fruition when we get to Revelation 20. So we need to have some familiarity with the, the Davidic kingdom. And here are some additional considerations. If you were to, at least for me, when we studied Daniel and I found myself in the Old Testament quite a bit, I, I didn't realize how much mention there was. Pretty much it's all about Israel's rebellion and sin. If you read the Old Testament and the prophets, the major and minor, and it's concerning the people of Israel, it, all, it deals with their unfaithfulness, their rebellion, and God punishing them because of the Mosaic Covenant that they entered into. If you do what you're supposed to do, you will be blessed. If you don't do what's required of you, you will be cursed. And so a lot of the Old Testament prophecies is concerning their punishment, but also within there, embedded in there, is God's mercy and grace, and that he will just, you know, you're like the people of Israel right now, the people of Israel, those, all they have to do is repent and acknowledge Messiah, uh, Yeshua, uh, Jesus as Savior. And he, just like us, you know, it's, it's the word of faith, right? Word, word comes from hearing, hearing the word of God. It's the word of God. They just need to hear it, repent, receive it, believe, and it's right there. But throughout their history, and as the Bible calls it, they have a spirit of stupor. Um, so for the time being, they're still in that spiritual state and they will continue to get punished. And what Daniel calls is the final period of indignation. Another consideration, in some of these school of thoughts, especially when it comes to eschatology, uh, they'll say that the people of Israel, because they killed Messiah and they destroyed their temple, that they're no longer God's people. And in fact, there are some teachings out there that says that when Jesus opens up the seven seals, that it was a divorce certificate to Israel. I remember hearing that one, like, well, where'd you get that from? But, no, there's a school of thought there, but no, the people of Israel will always be God's chosen people. They're a covenant people. They're Abraham's descendants. They will always be his people. Albeit, that doesn't mean they're all saved, and God deals with them accordingly, but they are still his chosen people. We're his chosen people, but not in a na national sense. You know, believers, Gentiles, when you know we're God's people too, but we're not His people in a national sense. Whereas the people and the nation of Israel, 
God has chosen to identify them with his name and, and their city and their land. But the people of Israel, we keep that in mind, will always be his people. And we're finally at the last slide. Um, we do need to be familiar with some biblical feasts, which are markers of when prophecies will be fulfilled. And when we get to our study, and there are some significance of the biblical feasts, including its timing, we will pull that in. Um, the Bible is a Middle East-centric book. I, I think I've kind of nailed that point home around the people of Israel and land of Israel. And John's visions into the heavenlies, the unseen, manifests itself in the physical. So when we learned, when we studied the book of Daniel, and he saw things in the unseen, in the heavenlies, you know, stars fall from heaven to the earth. Um, there are things going on in the angelic realm that Daniel saw that manifested itself through the rising of kings and the, the taking down of kings. So when Paul says we, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and principalities in the heavenly places. So what's going on in our country, in the countries around the world, there's angels pulling the strings behind the scenes, but God is giving them authority to do what they're doing. And it's manifesting itself in the physical. So if you feel like, you know, like things are going south or, you know, you're being violated or whatever it might be, that there's some sort of injustice, we might look at man as the object or a leader, but behind that there's a, an angel that's kind of, or angels influencing that outcome to produce what they were granted the authority to produce. But it's the same things in, Dan, in John's vision. Um, you know, he's seeing things into the heavenlies, and it's going to manifest itself in the physical. And, of course, the, we need to be familiar with Daniel's 70-week prophecy. So meaning, once we know kind of what to look at when the 70th week at least starts, or we're definitely in it, then you know we're not too far from the end of history as we know it today before uh, the millennial reign of Christ on earth. You got all that right. Okay. So these are loose ends. I, 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 and again, it's for my sake. I, need, I needed to pull these in. This is a lot. But hopefully it was a good recap and refresher. So now when we get to the book of Revelation, I feel better about it for me and I'll feel better about it for you because I gave us the opportunity to be reminded of, okay, how are we going to go about our study so that we can really try to get to the bottom of this and what, what is Revelation all about and what is it communicating and where can we find the blessing and then in turn be a blessing to one another. So that concludes our recap of pretty much four months of study. But isn't this better than me just giving you a quiz and seeing and grading you? You prefer this one better? Okay, good, good. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening today to Truth Matters Church. Well, with our homework complete, next week we open the book of Revelation with a careful examination of the first verse. And you might be surprised just how much is revealed in the very first words of this incredible book. And if you haven't already, be sure to mark us as a favorite or subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. And if the Lord leads you, you can support this ministry with a financial gift of any amount. Visit us at truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.